Welcome back to another episode of Faith in Politics. We are super excited uh, to introduce today's guest. She has been the MP for Battersea since 2017 and since becoming MP has held shadow cabinet roles in the areas of equality and disability and we are really pleased to welcome Marcia D. Cordova. Welcome, Marcia. Oh, hello. It's really lovely to see you both and thank you for inviting me. Well, we are so pleased uh, to have you. So, yeah, so this is Faith and Politics and what we kind of do is we just want to know a bit about your life and how they kind of, those two things, faith and politics, overlap for you. So you're an MP. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you became an MP, what your journey to that role was and, and yeah, yeah, where you are now, really? Great. Okay. So look, I didn't grow up saying I wanted to be an MP. That wasn't my my kind of aspiration growing up. But one thing um, I have always wanted to do was make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. I know that may sound cliche, cliche for some, but it really is just what I want to do throughout my life. And my career kind of, you know, um, it reflects that. Um, and so I spent most of my, my time working in the voluntary sector, um, leading mainly on uh, disability rights and campaigning, policy and influencing and um, obviously always wanting to make a difference and being a voice for the voiceless because of my own lived experience as well, being somebody with a visual impairment, um, I totally wanted to make sure that we create a more fairer and more equal world and society for disabled people. Um, and so that's pretty much what I was spending most of my life doing. And then, you know, doing politics, doing policy, you kind of recognise that in order to really make a difference, you've got to really be part of that change. And, you know, I couldn't sit on the sidelines, essentially, and complain about things I literally had to get on court. And um, in 2014 local elections here in London, I decided to put myself forward uh, for local council. And I was um, elected to represent um, the people of my own ward at the time. And, you know, being a local councillor, honestly, just isn't always about potholes and planning. There's so much more to it. You know, you are that community champion. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time um, on Lambeth Council. And then there was a snap general election called um, in 2017, five years ago, in fact. Um, and I put myself forward uh, to stand um, in Battersea, which was deemed back then as a, a pretty unwinnable ward. It was you know, the, the Conservative MP there had a good majority of nearly 8,000 and, you know, it felt like a fairly safe seat. So I was pretty much standing in Battersea to, you know, get some experience and, you know, learn how to be an effective candidate and so forth. Um, but, you know, I was able to win the seat and, you know, made it a Labour game, which is quite incredible. And, and you know, there were many factors to that win, I would have thought. I think, you know, Aside from, you know, me being a really good candidate, we ran an excellent campaign and it was really grassroots led as well. Um, and I was just bowled over by all the support of my family and my friends at the time um, that helped us to to um, win that seat. And my experience and my time as an MP for the last five years, it has been incredible. I'm so honoured and privileged to serve people because... You know, when you're in a public-facing role, particularly where you are representing people, you're serving. And that's what I see my role as an MP, is really serving people and being the voice um, of the people of Battersea right here in Westminster. Um, But, you know, the journey so far, it it, it has been great um, and stuff. And I have to say, my whole life experience being a lifelong campaigner, you know, I'm a trade unionist as well, um, it really has all helped and it has equipped me to do this job essentially 
which is good lived experience, obviously my career, um, but also, you know, that desire and passion to want to make a difference. Yeah, it sounds like you're a very effective campaigner, like you were saying, and um, you know, kind of, that's a great story to kind of go for the election thinking, oh, I'll learn so much in this process and I'll maybe one day have another go at this, but actually being so effective yeah. and actually winning the seat. It's, it's incredible. But also, you know, I, you know, I, I, I am a Christian. I'm a woman of faith. And obviously, you know, I strongly believe that God has a plan and purpose for each and every one mm-hmm. of us. And that must, that's his plan for my life right now. Yeah. You know, or else it wouldn't have happened, yeah. essentially. I could have done everything I wanted, but... It's what's in, what's in his plan and what's real for my life. What, what's that like then? Tell us a bit about kind of winning a, a seat you didn't maybe necessarily expect to win. And, and then I suppose your life must kind of change a bit overnight. Well, well I, mean, I was expecting to return back to my old job after the election. <laughs> yeah. election. Um, but, you know, essentially, you know, in the short, because it was a snap general election, it was a short at times, so I think it was around about a seven-week campaign, mm, um, and I pretty much lived, breathed <laughs> Battersea. Yeah. I was there seven days a week, and I was out meeting people, campaigning, knocking doors, having conversations three times a day most days. So I, I put my heart and soul into it. And you know, with me, anything I am committed to, or you know, I'm focused on, I give it my all. And I absolutely did. And again, I didn't give it my all with the expectation that I was going to win, but I really wanted to do well mm-hmm. at whatever I turned my hands to. And, you know, yes, it was cha- life-changing because, you know, the election was on a Thursday. You know, you're up all night Friday morning. And then, you know, the following Monday, you've got to, you're coming here, essentially, to start your job <laughs> as a Member of Parliament. And, you know, I, I, I've never worked in Parliament, but obviously very familiar with Parliament and how it works because of my role in policy and campaigning. Mm. So I spent a lot of time here meeting MPs and so mm. forth. So you kind of understand how the place works, but it's totally different. And I'm seeing it from another side um, and stuff. But, you know, yes, it was changed, but it's great. I wasn't the only person that got elected in 2017. There were lots of us newbies, you know, the class of 2017, there were some great folks some real good friends of mine and you know we were all learning together on that journey and you know parliament have some practical things they put in place to support new members also so that also really helps and I had a few friends here as well already so that you know that also helped and contributed to it so all in all I'm like I, I will go back and say you know it was clearly his will that I was here at this time mm. and so that's how it's happened and you know I'm a strong believer as you know if God calls you to something will cause you to do something, he's going to equip you to do it as well. You know, it's not all in your own strength and in your own capacity. And it's yeah. important to, to recognise that. Yeah. Um, and it's so encouraging to hear you talk about giving your all to something. You're not just dipping your toe in and thinking, oh, maybe this will just happen if God wants it to happen. But, but I guess holding those things in tension of giving it everything, putting all that energy and effort in, like you're saying, to that election, but also campaigning in general, but also knowing that, you know, God has a plan and has good things and et cetera. Um, so it's yeah, really interesting to hear how you hold those together and yeah, inspiring to give our everything to causes that we care about. How do you manage? So for myself, working in an MP's office, I have been able to see a little bit about just the incredible workload and the expectations that people have, both 
um, maybe friends and colleagues and members of your constituency residents how do you I guess in the vein of giving your everything balance that to do you choose certain issues that you particularly give your everything to or do you how do you balance that massive workload and expectations yourself well there's a few things there actually so first of all you you've you said it there balance and it's really important to have balance in your life um, regardless of whether you're uh, an MP or not frankly and so I choose to try and find balance with family life and my work life and you know what I do do as an MP but my constituents and Battersea is my priority so Everything that I do here in Westminster pretty much relates to representing and being the voice um, for my constituents. But as you rightly point out, as you'll both know, working in offices of, of, of MPs, we are very busy. Um, but you also know we have, we have great, a great team. Um, and I'm a London MP, so my workload, I believe, is, is just it's full on. You know, I get hundreds of emails and correspondence every day. And because I'm in London as well... I tend to do a lot of events during the week, for example, in my constituency as and when mm-hmm. I can. Um, and, you know, I try and divide my time well. We're here four days a week. And then on Fridays, for instance, I'm in Battersea all the time, you know, doing visits or meeting my constituents and just, you know, being out and about and, and at the weekends as well. But it just really is about finding balance. And you have to prioritise um, what you focus on. So, you know... There are issues that I, I've campaigned on and I kind of were committed to when I stood as a candidate in 2017 as well as in 2019. And those are the things that I focus on, whether it's housing and, you know, ensuring that we build more decent and affordable homes to tackling the issues around fire safety and cladding um, to ensuring that, you know, all homes, whether it's, you know, council or housing association our homes are at a decent standard mm-hmm. and that you know they are fit for habitation because those things are really important so you know those that's an issue those areas like ha- around housing are priorities for me you know issues when you think about the environment climate and air quality today is today is clean air day and you know there are so many challenges around air pollution particularly um, across London and that also would include my own um, constituency as well so you know it really matters that yeah. a i'm holding the government to account on this but i'm also you know constantly raising those issues here um, in westminster yeah this is something I, I think about a lot you, you use that phrase holding the government to account and i i do a lot of um policy emails and i will always use that phrase or we're putting pressure on the government or on government to account and sometimes i'll write it and go Yo, what does that really mean look in parliament um as you know, um, for, for, the, for it to work here, you've got to have a party of government and you have to have the opposition. And I'm part of Her Majesty's official opposition, so my job here, as well as representing and being that voice, is to try and hold them to account on issues that matter to um, my constituents. So, for example, let's just take an issue I talked about. It's Clean Air Day today. So, you know, in Parliament today, this is an issue that I raised you know, setting out what some of the, the levels are, um, which are clearly exceeding um, WHO standards, and, you know, government failing to, you know, set proper, you know, ambitious targets, or actually just signing up to WHO standards as well, you know, the international targets, and they're not doing that, so we've got to keep pushing them to do that. You know, every time you do something here, whether it's speaking in the chamber or whether you're on a select committee and scrutinising government policy, well, you're actually trying to influence change as well, because that's another thing. Being in opposition, you have to, you know, engage 
at different levels, whether it's through cross-party issues that you can build mm. a consensus over it or through your engagement with ministers uh, and with government to try and bring about some of those changes. It's, it's important that we do that because if we're not, then we're not doing our jobs as Her Majesty's official opposition. And also, you know, any good government would also appreciate criticism from their own benches where they're, where they're getting things wrong. And I'm sure they do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess my point really was one about this, this thing of being in opposition because absolutely, I'm, I, there's, you know, the MP I work for, I'm, I'm sure if, if we could click our fingers to, you know, right now and change so many things that we'd love to change, we, we would. And I guess really what I was, I was wondering about was how do you find being in opposition then and how do you deal with the the, the frustrations of that obviously you know Labour wants to be in, in government and you don't, you don't come here to be in opposition you, know? you come here to be in government because you want to change things and you want to introduce your policies and your agenda because we all want to make a difference and we all want to improve the lives of the people that we serve and represent so opposition isn't great however because I'm that's the position I'm I find myself, I have to work in a way that will enable me to try and bring about changes for the people of Battersea in whatever way, shape or form or whatever way is possible. And, you know, and also being in opposition, you know, I've held um, shadow ministerial roles, um, serving in shadow cabinet on issues around equalities and, you know, helping to shape my party's kind of direction and policy and vision in some of these areas, particularly on disabled people's rights. You know, again, that's incredibly important because, for example, should you be in that position and you are going to be fighting an election and you win, you will be leading and implementing that change. But no, it's not great. But there are areas where you just have to, you know, push the government on and you have to build consensus around issues that you know that you know what the government will want to try and make a difference on something. Do you understand? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think the government are failing and falling down on so many issues, frankly. And that's just a fact, in my opinion, yeah, based on the evidence around me. You know, like this week, we marked five years since Grenfell. And yeah. frankly, you know, I do not feel the people of that tragedy have got justice yet. And it, it breaks my heart that five years on, that is still the case. You use that phrase, um, build consensus. What how do you think we do that? Where do you think that starts? Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And I think you have, there are issues. So, for example, one of my priority um, the areas that I'm really keen on doing a lot of work around is eye health. So I chair an all-party parliamentary group on eye health and sight loss. And if you know these groups, they have to have be cross-party. So the work of that group is where you will build consensus around eye care and around the pathway and so forth. So that's just an example of how you can work in a constructive way to try and bring about change or, you know, produce an evidence base or reports for government for them to take on board. And you've just mentioned there again that passion that you have about disability rights and how that's, I guess, gone through your career and through your own experiences that you've stood up for again and again. Um, obviously, incredible. How has that been in your experience of... You know, being someone with a disability coming into Parliament, have you found that door to be open to you? Do you think, or has it been extra challenging because of that? Uh, Beth, you know, there, obviously there were additional challenges and barriers for me coming here. 
um, as well because I wasn't expected to win. They probably weren't even geared up for me, you know. But but you know, to their credit, um, you know, they were they got in touch straight away and wanted to see me to talk about all of my access needs. Okay, and that and so you know those things did happen, and then I could go through with them all of the my requirements, i.e., having all my papers. Um, in large print, for mm-hmm. example, having an office with really good lighting, for instance, you know, when I'm in the chamber making sure that if I'm speaking from the dispatch box, um, that I have like a particular stand so I can rest my papers on, mm-hmm. for instance. You know, it's all of these small things, you know, navigating this estate, as you know, the parliamentary estate is huge, yeah. but it's not accessible, particularly if you're in the Palace of Westminster, mm-hmm. and I'm lucky enough to have a very nice office there. Um, but it's not the most accessible. The lighting isn't great. There's a lot of uneven <laughs> flooring yeah, yeah. Um, there. Most of the steps in this building do not have any colour contrasting or any delineation so that you can distinguish between the steps. Thankfully, all of the glass doors now have um, colour markings so you can see the glass because otherwise you need just walk into it. Um, so that was useful for them to do. Sadly, and some of them, they still only put grey markings when I suggested you know, fluorescent green or something or yellow so that people can actually see it. But, you know, it's baby steps. But, you know, the whole kind of, you know, way that, I mean, I still struggle with things. I'm not going to say it's it's easy. I don't always get my papers in large print on time at the same time as everyone else. That is frustrating. Of course it is. And it, and it shouldn't happen. But I will continue to keep banging that drum because I want to, forever long God wants me here, I want to ensure that anyone that's coming behind me or joins me here will not have to experience those same challenges. I do hope that, you know, Parliament and also our political parties are also learning and doing better because we should be leading by example here, you know, and that's important. We, we really should. Um, and I want everyone to kind of understand it. It shouldn't be, oh, so how bad has your experience been or what yeah. have you experienced challenges? It should just be normal and commonplace for me to be here. Yeah. Do you understand? But we're still not there yet. And, you know, I was speaking at an event um, on Tuesday just about power and disability and, you know, how, you know, how that has kind of really happened across our movement. And, you know, I'll I'll always, you know, put my hands up and say progress has been made on um, disability equality, but we still have, you know, so, so, such a long way to go for it to be fully achieved because we don't have full protections um in law because you know whilst we had the ddn in 95 and it was replaced by the equality act in 2010 you know disabled people are still you know <laughs> facing huge challenges whether it's in the labor market whether it's in the housing market whether it's in in the education system you know there are so many challenges where we need to iron it out and that's why i'm a strong advocate for the un convention on the rights of disabled people because if that was fully incorporated into uk law that's where you will start to see our human and civil rights recognised on parity footing. Yeah. And we're not there yet. So my job here is still, <laughs> is really far from being done, frankly. Yeah, so it might be your fifth anniversary here, but you've still got a yeah. job to do. Exactly. Um, yeah, I guess, I suppose my question from that, and I, I'm feel free to rebuff me and say this is a, a silly question. Um, do you ever lament that... Um, that, that becomes a, a big part of what you are doing here in, in Parliament because that is your lived experience. Do you ever feel as though you've, your lived experience has, has put you in a particular 
box or do you actually embrace it and see it as part of your identity and and, and part of a challenge that you want to embrace I, maybe that's a false binary yeah, to make so. you choose i probably think it is um actually because i don't know you and i don't know your your experience or if you've you know what you've what you've sure. gone through in your life but you know everyone's lived experience is part of it, it make it you know that's what builds and it kind of helps them to be who they are I suppose so I'm not quite sure I mean you can't really pigeonhole me do you know what I mean and you can't I can't you can't put me in a box I suppose in terms of you know yes I might be a disabled woman but uh, I'm a member of parliament I'm a friend I'm a sister I'm you know I'm so many other things this is just one element of what I do I think what you I don't know if this is what you are trying to drive at, but essentially, yes, my um, disability and the challenges that I have had to overcome is part of who I am, but it's absolutely made me who I am as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for like being willing to talk about that with us. Um, no, it's part of who I am. You know, I, I talk quite free and openly about it. So, yeah. you know, everybody um, who knows me, you know, very open about things, but I also talk about so many other things. Of course, well. yeah, absolutely. And and the role of an MP, you have to be able to Precisely. pivot back and forward. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned a little bit about your faith and about mm. what it, how you see your role mm. in that. So just wondering if you think, so thinking that our listeners probably maybe are interested in politics or mm. um, maybe know a little bit, but how, like, what would you want to say to them about maybe? their own political involvement or trying to make change in their own areas any like words of encouragement that you'd have um on that difficult journey yeah well you know one of the things that I always um I I kind of live by I think you know in life you know sometimes we we think that we can't do something or we're fearful about doing something and I always just say do afraid Mm -hmm. um and I heard that from somebody else years and years ago and I've always kind of held on to that um, because I think we should, um, or you know, and but as well, you know, people talk about faith and politics, and many will say you shouldn't allow them to mix and all the rest of it. And I don't agree mm-hmm. because I think our faith really should be, you know, what we, our belief and what we believe and stand for should be in every sphere of life, mm-hmm. and politics should not yeah. be excluded from that. Yeah. Frankly, it should be <laughs> massively part of who <laughs> we are and what we we believe. And that you know this. It's quite something, you know, we start out every day in this in, in this place with prayers, you know. But, you know, that's not by chance, you know, and that's really, um, I think, is quite important for people to, to know and understand. Um, you know, and I always believe Jesus was a socialist anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, kind of get, I kind of go with that also. But, no, but genuinely, you know, it, it's so important. Everything that we do is, it, again, I go back to it being in service and whether that's, you know, me being a politician or what, but, you know, we need more people of faith in politics, actually. You know, don't be deterred by it. it you know, we're facing difficult times, I believe, because yeah. we've got an interesting, you know, government and prime minister, and <laughs> that alone, I've said that I think, has the nicest possible way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, essentially, you know, our, moral, our morals, our values matter, and you know if you see anyone else descending it doesn't mean that everyone else has Mm. and also it's about us speaking out and being that voice and that's the key that's what you have to do Mm. you know um when you remain silent on issues i don't think silence on issues is is an option frankly Mm. i genuinely don't believe that when you see injustice or when you see wrongdoing whether you're in politics or not you're in you're wanting to enter politics 
you cannot be silent on issues, mm-hmm. you know. And obviously that element of fear comes into it, but you just got to do it for it. Yeah. Oh, that's an encouraging challenge, hey? <laughs> it is a challenge, but, 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 you know, God has not told us this journey is easy. How, and maybe you've said it before, but how do you keep going? How do you keep being hopeful? How do you keep getting up in the morning and, and yeah. like pushing and pushing and having the strength to keep to keep working as hard as you do? You know, but for his grace, absolutely. Um, you know, you have to remain hopeful. We are we are people of faith, so we we really do. And you know, this this season it shall pass. Uh, I genuinely believe that. I, I also think you know, look. As, as Christians, we have to make sure we are fed, we are nourished, and we have good fellowship. And you know, these are the main things I talk about, you know, fellowship, the word, and worship, and community. Those things are really important to me. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that help to, you know, give me foundation and stability. And my church, which is in South London, um, I'm very blessed to be part of such an incredible church, but also a church with such a history, mm-hmm. you know, with Wilberforce attending that church and he's also met and he was obviously a conservative, I'm Labour, but you know, this mm-hmm. is just how it is. But essentially, you know, we have to always remain hopeful in despair. If you read the Bible, I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, come on, there are some stories in there you just think, how on earth did they, they keep going? And they did. Look at all of the different yeah. characters in the Bible, particularly women as well, who were just so inspiring to me. And you know, when God has called you to do something, you have to do it. You know, as hard as that is, but I'm not telling you, I'm not sitting here and, and proclaiming that this is easy. It's not. Yeah. It really isn't, but it is a blessing and it is an honour to do it. So I will remain hopeful yeah. for as long as he has positioned me here yeah. to occupy this space. Yeah, that's really cool. Just one last thing I wanted to ask about, because you've, you've mentioned it a few times, is, that, is this word and this idea of calling. And what do you, what do you understand calling to mean and, and, and to be? And how do you feel called? And how do you know what calling is? I think that can often be a really scary or daunting thing. Or sometimes we might feel, ah, I don't know if I am called or I don't know what I'm called to. I know that I'm called to be the voice for the voiceless. It might be being in politics here. It might be me being, you know, on mission somewhere. I don't know. But that's what I mean when I talk about me I know that I've called to be a voice for the voiceless through my own lived experience and just for all the places that God has moved me and how he's navigated me throughout my life he's clearly put that on me and it is something that I you know feel quite deeply about also so I know it's it's all through him so that's my kind of meaning on it I don't believe you know people can be called people can be called to be you know ministers and they have ministry and that's amazing and you know that's what they're supposed to be doing because of the blessing that they are imparting onto so many of us. Um, and But for now, for this season, and this is where he's placed me, and, you know, this is what I've been called to do right now. And, you know, as and when he wants to enhance this season and move me to something different or onto something else, then, you know, I will do that. But I think whatever he has called you to do, you have to do it with all your heart and soul. I think that's the most important thing, you know, so that when we've completed our journey here, he can say, well done. You know, I think that's what we all want, right? Yeah, yeah. That's all we all want. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you know, along that journey, along all of your journeys, um, you know, we are going to face challenges or we're going to probably fall or we're going to make a mistake and whatever. But there are so many examples in the Bible of people that, that of characters that made mistakes and they, you know, yeah, they didn't change. 
you know, God still loved them. Just get up and keep going, you know. That's why the whole fear thing, we all know where fear comes from. But it can be crippling. It, it can be, you know. But essentially, you just have to, you know, just do it anyway. Where you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think that feels like an incredible place to land, actually. Thank you so much, Marsha, to be encouraged to feel the fear, to know what the Lord is calling you to do, and to do it with everything you have. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming to spend your time speaking to us today. Cool, thank you. Thanks, thank you both so much. And we are back with you fresh from our first ever in-person interview. How did it feel, Ryan, to not be over Zoom, but instead actually be able to meet with Marsha in real life? Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. It's um, it's so funny. It's like, you know, we've all been so conditioned by COVID, even though, you know, all of the restrictions have been lifted for months and months now. Um, we're all so Zoom dependent uh, mm-hmm. in our lives. And so to revert back to pre-Zoom days was odd in some ways but but fun and yeah we were just chatting now it's so you can just I don't know it's just it's just nice to be in the room with a person isn't it and you just get a chance to actually feel like you know them a little bit more than than somebody you've only ever met in in 2d um (laughs) so yeah no that was fun I also think we did particularly well considering we had a little bit of a technical hiccup just before we started, but we managed to um, work on the fly and be agile. I should I should fess up here. Um, because we were doing it in person, we got we had this special podcast kit, which was going to make our lives super easy. It's a couple of microphones, some wires, they plug into different things. And it all records onto this little magic box where you can like di- change the sound levels and everything you might need in a, in a podcaster's life. And um, we were all set up. We did a little practice run. It was great. We came over to Westminster where we recorded. It was all packed up, came out of this little bag. Um, we set up and I was an idiot and I'd left the SD card on which we were to su- save all of the recording at the other office. So we didn't have it. Um, and whilst I was flapping around um, trying to magic up an SD card, um, Beth, Beth saved the day with, with uh, Sage stern pragmatism uh. <laughs> thanks i'll take that um always like being good in a crisis <laughs> no and um, we managed to think on the fly it was all good but glad we actually managed it um to speak to marsha today um so some reflections the first one for me thing that really stuck out and i think it comes out in the interview itself is she is a woman who really knows what she thinks sure. she is in the role because she has been able to communicate really effectively with her constituents i can really see that through her years of campaign experience and um, real desire to make change, that she's able to really explain what she thinks and, I guess, get people to trust her. And mm. I think she obviously is an incredibly effective campaigner. I can really see that. Yeah, there's no sense... Well, look, we don't know her super well. We don't, we're not her, her best friend, so we don't know every ounce of her psyche but at least externally there's no sense of kind of doubt that this is where she's she's meant to be um clearly she has a great deal of of um belief that this really is her calling and that was a phrase she used a lot and I asked her about it and it's really interesting I think it might be something we've spoken about before in this podcast but I think that idea of of calling is a really interesting one what what do you make of the notion of of calling I think 
I like the idea that God has given us each mm. skills and experience and things that we're innately good at mm. and that like gifts and skills and then spiritual gifts as well but things that we naturally might lean towards because we're good at them or mm. because we've been given that gift and I do think that God gives us gifts of skills as well I guess do I think that that sense extends to a divine sense of calling I guess I definitely think it's possible and I would love to feel that for myself um, I probably in my life so far have always wanted that but never felt a specific sense of calling but other than a calling to help people to make change to lead well to help other people flourish and thrive and use their gifts and skills mm. I probably don't feel a, a divine sense yeah. of calling um, but I definitely believe it's possible and yeah but not exclusive. I probably think as well that most of us go through life without a divine sense of calling, but we're no less called to be obedient. I think that's probably what I believe is the biggest calling for a Christian, for anyone with Christian faith is to serve as she was talking about and to Mm. serve and to love the Lord and to be obedient and be faithful in the small things and in the big, Mm. rather than a divine sense of you're destined to become something specific. Mm. Um, yeah what about yourself well I th- one thing she, that she said which did strike me was this sense that this is where she feels she's called to for now but it may not be in in her view anyway it may not be in her hands as to whether or not this is you know where she how long and in what sense she is in this particular calling for she, essentially I guess I was struck by the fact that she seemed to be very at ease with the fact that it might that being an MP or whatever could disappear overnight and that if that were to happen, that would be, in her sense of, of, as I understood her to be describing things, God's calling on her life and it would just be the beginning of the calling. And I think that's a really impressive way to be able to to hold things. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, you you know me quite well now, Beth, and we've, we've spoken about lots of these things. I... I yeah I guess I I and I think we spoke about it on the podcast before but I sometimes find the idea of calling a bit difficult not least because I I've never felt like you know I've had God whisper in my ear and say you're going to become a pastry chef or or whatever um but I, you know God if if that's it I I would take that up tomorrow but um so I've never felt like I've had that clear calling a and B, I sometimes wonder: Do we use not not by any means, Marsha? But can can Christians be guilty of using the idea of calling as an excuse for, or not even calling, but God's plan or God's will for stuff as an excuse for um, explaining why things happened? Mm. And I just think if we are pursuing justice, we have to be really careful with that because if you take that too far then the reason that we don't like, the the reason that there are people in power that we don't like or the reason that bad things are happening would by that logic be that God has called them to be there. Now, I'm not saying that's what Marsha or anyone is saying, but I just think I wouldn't want to follow the logic through that far. And so, yeah, this is why I sometimes get 
struggle a little bit with what does calling mean and what does calling look like. But I was really impressed by that sense of um, not my will, but yours and whatever's ahead of me, I, I can, I trust you in that. And I think there's a great deal to, to be taken from that as an attitude to life. Yeah, I think sometimes we don't really think about what happens to MPs after they finish, after yeah. they either lose their seat or they resign or they decide, actually, uh, I'm kind of done with this, I've served my time as mm. an MP and I'm going to move on, is that you know, you've been in this position of influence and responsibility and then you have to just move on. Yeah. So absolutely, it's really admirable to think about being at peace with that. Mm. And I didn't get the sense at all that, you know, if she ever moved on from being an MP that Marsha would stop campaigning and pushing for those issues for her community for Battersea and for the issues that she's particularly passionate about she's not going to stop you know nothing is going to stop her from trying to see change Mm -hmm. and the issues that she is convinced need to be changed and I think it's a lesson for all of us that wherever we are that we too can push and seek change she's been Mm. doing that for years and that kind of hope and relentlessness in that Mm. I think that's admirable and you know seeing that as a calling itself to 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 seek justice and not be discouraged yeah I do think um you made an interesting point at the beginning there I think you know there's that old adage that all political careers end in failure and yet you don't see them you know, generally, if you know, I was going to give the example of Ed Balls, but we do know about Ed Balls because he did Strictly. But, you know, plenty of MPs, they lose their seats and you never really hear from them again. And um, we should try and find someone to come on the pod who's who's lost their seat and um, and to explore that sense of failure and what does what does failure do to your sense of calling? How does that, you know, rock your sense of who you are? I can imagine... I can imagine it might. <laughs> um, so that's, yeah, that's a really interesting thing and certainly something I'd love to to pick up in the future if we can. One last question for you, Ryan. So um, as an ardent Labour supporter, do you think that Jesus was a socialist? Hmm. It's an interesting one, Beth. I, I um, It was quite <laughs> funny. I, I, I bit my tongue at the moment she said that because... Um, not because I don't think that Jesus would, would, I do think if you put Jesus on the, um, on the political compass, he'd be on the left of it. Um, I do think that. But what I, all I was thinking was, well, that's a slightly anachronistic sense of <laughs> turn of phrase because, um, because socialism didn't exist in the first, cent- first century, uh, Jerusalem. But, um, I acknowledge that that would be, a. a a petty uh, and um, irritating thing for me to say. I'm glad um, you bit your tongue. <laughs> um, and also, I do think uh, Jesus would vote Labour. Um, <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd particularly desperately agree. Well, thank you so much for listening, for tuning in to Faith in Politics. We're so glad that we got to chat to Marsha today. I hope you found it really interesting. I know that um, we certainly did. Well, make sure you tune in next time to Faith in Politics. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.